Good morning. We'll just let that one go. Um, we've already been through this this morning, right? Um, I want to start out with a bad news, good news story. Um, the bad news is there is a dim bulb in the room. The good news is it's not me for once, so that's all good. You've probably noticed that it's difficult to see the screen. Um, it's not your eyes. You don't need to make an appointment with your doctor or anything like that. We had the bulb replaced in the projector. Turned out they put the wrong bulb in the projector. Uh, the proper one has been ordered. Hopefully it'll be here soon. And once more, you'll have all of the bright, shiny graphics where you can see them easily. But for now, you don't need to do anything except just strain a little harder as you look up at the screen. Um, got a, something that's uh, you know, for, uh, for us to rejoice about. Uh, many of you have gotten to know Derek and Rebecca Jones from uh, Capitan, been here for several weeks with us. It was important for Rebecca to be here while they awaited the birth of their new baby, be close to hospitals and doctors. And I'm very pleased to announce that their baby was born on Friday. Her name is Abigail. She weighed a robust four pounds and 10 ounces. Um, the baby and mom, Rebecca, are doing great. So thank you guys for your prayers. Um, continue to pray for them. But that's great news. I was a little concerned this morning when Derek showed up. I was expecting to be in Capitan where a good preacher should be preaching to his congregation. But instead, he's here with us worshiping and celebrating the birth of his new baby girl. So it's just great news. I um, also want to mention one more time that the area-wide worship service is tonight. That will start at 5 o'clock here in the auditorium. Milton Jones will be speaking to us. It'll be a great time of worship, of singing, of praise. And then finally, after that, we'll have a great time of eating food together. So we'll go over to the gym after the worship service We'll have a Taco Hut dinner, we'll have homemade pies, we'll have great fellowship, and it's really important that you be here tonight so that we can be together not only as a congregation, but as we meet with other Christians from throughout the city. It's always great singing, great fellowship, great conversations. It's kind of like a family reunion, getting to see people that we don't see that often. So please plan on being here tonight at 5. So as you probably know, we're spending the summer talking about identity. This summer, what we want to do is we want to find and embrace who we really are in Christ. And throughout this summer, we're going to see that for us, for Christians, everything having to do with our true identity begins and ends with Jesus Christ. And what's true for us individually is also true for us as a church. As a church, everything that we are, everything that we do should begin and end with Jesus Christ. In fact, the best way to find out the identity of this church or the identity of any church is to observe what they do, to observe what we do. You know, it's one thing to put up a sign that says we are a church of Christ, but the best test, the true test of our identity as a church that belongs to Christ isn't the sign on the building. Instead, it's the actions of the people inside the building. It's the things that we do. It's the things that we value. And if we truly are of Christ, then our actions and our activities and the things we value are going to be all about Jesus. 
So I'd like to tell you this morning just a little bit about the identity of this church. We are a church that encourages and challenges every member to engage in regular and disciplined Bible study. That's why we have things like Bible reading challenges and daily Bible reading topics. That's why you'll hear us talking about those things and me giving regular updates about how many books of the Bible we have read as a congregation. And we do that not because we love to keep records. We do that because we love Jesus. And when we read our Bibles, we find Jesus there. And we find more reason to love Jesus there. That's why we want part of our identity as a church to be that we are a Bible-studying, Bible-reading church. It's all about Jesus. Let me give you one of those updates right now. As we're halfway through the year, we've read 1,218 books of the Bible as a congregation. You know, we're also a church that believes that every member of this family should have a rich and active prayer life. We know that prayer is powerful and effective. And we know that it's powerful and effective because Jesus Christ is interceding for us there. So we want part of our identity to be that we are a praying church. Once more, it's all about Jesus. You know, we'd love to pray for you. If you have a need in your life or in the life of someone that you know and love, please let us know about that so we can lift that request up in prayer. You'll find a green card in front of you, and you can fill out your request there. You can drop it in one of our prayer collection boxes, and tomorrow morning that will go out to hundreds of people who are waiting to pray for you. You can find two collection boxes at the back of the auditorium And there's a third one just through these double doors. We are a praying church. We're also a church that believes in the powerful work of baptism. Not the powerful work that we do in baptism, but the powerful work that God does in baptism. See, it's in baptism that we put our faith in the saving work of Jesus Christ. When you go down in the water, you join with Jesus there. You join in his death and his burial and his resurrection there. And when you come up out of the water, you are washed clean. You're reborn as a new person. You're clothed with Christ there. So we want part of our identity to be a baptizing church. And we also want you to know that if you're here and you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the divine Son of God, the Savior of the world, and you haven't been baptized, we really should have a conversation about that. That conversation so you too can be reborn and find your true identity, your true identity in the family of God. To start that conversation, you can use that same green card. On the back, you'll see a place where it says next steps. And all you need to do is fill out your contact information, check the box that you'd like to talk to someone about baptism, and I will call you Monday morning and we'll start that conversation. We are a baptizing church. And finally, we're a church that believes in the power of the church. 
See, we believe that every Christian should join together with other Christians in a church family to worship together, to serve together, to just live life together. It's important that every one of us has a local church family because that's where you'll find Jesus and that's where you'll find Jesus' people. So we want part of our identity to be that we're a close-knit and unified family in Jesus Christ. So if you've been attending here for a while and you haven't yet let us know that you'd like to be a part of this family, I'd really encourage you to take that same green card. Again, fill out your contact information. Check the box about being a member of this church and I'll contact you again on Monday and we'll have that conversation as well. We believe that together we are so much more powerful than we could ever be apart. So, it's all about Jesus. We want to make sure that Jesus is the source of our identity as a church because identity in Christ is important, it's vital, it's who we must be as a church. And we're also finding out that Our identity um, as individuals must begin and end in the same place. It must begin and end with Jesus Christ. And we're seeing this summer that identity is vitally important because who we believe we are drives our behavior. We live out who we believe we are. And identity is important for Christians because the world is full of all kinds of identity traps. We've seen that identity traps are one of Satan's most powerful tools. We know from experience that he's constantly bombarding us with lies. And those lies are designed to convince us that we aren't who God has declared us to be. And if we believe those lies, if we believe Satan's lies about who we are, then we can't live out the lives that God has intended for us to live. So what we're doing this summer is each week we're looking at a different aspect of our true identity in Christ. And we're doing that to refute and to counteract Satan's lies. We're doing that so we can be set free to believe and embrace who we really are, who we really are in Jesus Christ. And this morning, we're going to embrace our identity in Christ as adopted children of God. Adopted children of God. Let that sink in for just a moment. If you are a Christian... God has declared that in Christ you have been adopted as his child. An adopted child of God. Well, why is that important? Well, it's important because the key to knowing who we are is knowing who our father is. Is knowing who our God is. And Jesus consistently reveals God's identity to us as Father. In fact, in the New Testament, God is referred to as Father over 250 times. And that may not sound all that remarkable to you, 250 times. 
It may not sound all that remarkable until you consider that God is very rarely referred to as Father in the Old Testament. And when God is referred to as Father in the Old Testament, it's almost always in reference to his relationship to a nation, to the nation of Israel. It's not in relationship to individuals within that nation, but to the nation itself. So the image that emerges as God, as Father in the Old Testament is in the sense of like a patriarch. As the founder and the ruler of the nation. And that's certainly a part of God's identity. But that's not the picture that emerges in the New Testament. No, in the New Testament, it refers not only to God as Father much more frequently than the Old Testament does, it also does so while presenting a very different picture of God as Father. It's a more personal image of God. It's the image of a loving and caring and involved father. And not just of the nation, but of the individuals within his nation. So I have to wonder, what changed? What changed between the old and the new? Why this different aspect of God that's brought forth? Well, once more, it's all about Jesus. It's Jesus who changed how we view God. See, when Jesus came to earth, he revealed God's identity more completely. He's on earth, God in the flesh. And as he revealed God more completely, his fundamental revelation of God is as Father. So God is our Father. But for us, Father is kind of a loaded term, isn't it? A lot of us have different kind of feelings about the term father. In fact, our, our usefulness, the usefulness and the value of understanding God as father really is very much impacted by our experience with our own fathers. So for some of us, like me, the word father evokes nothing but good emotions, positive and heartwarming emotions. But I know for others of us, it evokes very different emotions. Different emotions maybe because their father was distant or absent or even cruel. So it's important that we understand up front what Jesus is trying to convey to us when he refers to God as father. And I want you to know he isn't saying that God is just a better version of your earthly, your flesh and blood father. Instead, he's saying God is everything that you could possibly hope for in a father. He's a father that not only wants what's best for you, he absolutely has the power to make that happen for you. So I want you to listen to this statement. The all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, completely faithful, boundlessly loving, creator and sustainer, the God of the universe is your father. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Let me turn it around a little bit. If you are a Christian, 
You are a son or daughter of the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, completely faithful, abundantly loving, creator and sustainer, the God of the universe. Now, I want everybody to stop, and I want you, everybody to look up at me, okay? Focus on me. I'm going to say that again. If you are a Christian, you are a son or daughter of the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, completely faithful, boundlessly loving, creator and sustainer, the God of the universe. And we're very quiet, aren't we? I know it's not part of our identity as a church, but you know, we really shouldn't be able to sit silently and impassively in our pews when we hear the news that in Christ it has been declared that we are the sons and daughters of the God of the universe. How can we sit back like that's not a big deal? And I have to believe that the reason why we don't express more gratitude, why we don't have more joy about our status as God's children, is because we really haven't fully embraced that reality. I don't think we've fully embraced the reality that we are sons and daughters of the God of the universe. I don't think we've embraced that as who we really are, our true identity. And I get it. I know why it's hard to embrace that identity. For me, it's hard to embrace my identity as a son of God because I know I don't deserve that identity. And it's also hard for me to embrace my identity as the son of God because oftentimes I don't look very much like my father. And I know it's hard to embrace that identity because, you know, it just seems too good to be true. That the God of the universe would embrace me as his son. And it's also hard to embrace our identity as sons and daughters of the God of the universe because we're constantly bombarded with messages telling us that that can't be true. Because we're not good enough. We're not strong enough. We're not smart enough. We're not whatever enough to be God's son or daughter. But the reality is it's not about us. It's about Jesus. We didn't make ourselves sons and daughters of God. Jesus allowed that to happen. So how did that happen? How did I become, how did you become a child of God? Well, we didn't earn our way into God's family, did we? No, instead we were invited into his family. We were accepted into his family. And our acceptance was never based on who we are. Never on who our ancestors were. It was never based on what we had done or what we were about to do or what we were doing at the time. Now, our acceptance into God's family is based on our faith in Jesus Christ. In God's family, that's how children are identified. That's how you recognize children. It's their faith in Jesus Christ. That's our Christian DNA. 
sons and daughters of God are identified by their faith, their faith in Jesus and their relationship with Jesus. Their relationship with the Son of God. That's the point John makes near the beginning of his gospel when he writes this, John chapter 1, verse 12. He said, to all who received Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. How did you become a child of God? Well, that was given to you. You were given that right by your father. You were given that right by God. Not because of anything your parents did. Not because of anything you did, but because of your faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why you were reborn with a new identity. That's why you're the child of God. Paul put it this way in Galatians chapter 3. He said, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. How did you become a child of God? Well, what Paul's talking about here is he's talking about your birthing moment. The moment you were born into God's family. The moment when you were baptized, when you went into the water with one identity and you came out with a brand new identity. Clothed with Christ. Child of God. No longer identified by your labels or by those traps. Not by your profession. Not by your race. Not by your gender. We are all one in Christ Jesus. So make no mistake, in Christ, you are a child of God. And you are a child of God because you have been adopted by God. This is another sink-in moment. Let that sink in. You have been adopted as a child of God. You are adopted In the rest of our time this morning, I want to focus on just how remarkable, just how radical that is, that you and I are adopted children of God. I'm sure that we all have at least a general idea of what it means to adopt or be adopted. But I want you to hear the specific definition of what the Bible means when it talks about adoption. So listen to this definition. To adopt is to formally and legally declare that someone who is not one's own son or daughter will be treated as if they are, including complete rights of inheritance. Let me say that again. To adopt is to formally and legally declare that someone who is not one's own son or daughter will be treated as if they are, including complete rights 
of inheritance. So this is the remarkable and the radical part of your adoption. See, in Christ, God has formally and legally declared that you will be treated as his natural child, including complete rights of inheritance. And that may be really hard to believe. That may be really hard to embrace because it just seems too good to be true. That's exactly what Paul affirms in Galatians chapter 4. He says, God sent his son. And he sent his son to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. See, Paul's talking about you. And he's talking about me and he's talking about our adoption. We have the full rights of sons. Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 8. He said, you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. Once again, Paul's talking here about your adoption. You see, when you were baptized, God gave you the gift of his spirit, and that spirit is God's seal. It's a seal. It's the proof of God's declaration to the world that you have been reborn as his adopted child with all of the rights of a natural son. That's why you no longer have to live in fear. You no longer have to live in fear because you have a new and better identity and that identity is in Christ. Because in Christ, you are the adopted child of God with full rights of a son. Zero in on that for a minute. What does it mean that you have full rights? Again, back to Romans chapter 8, this time in verse 17. Paul writes this, he says, If we are his children, then we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. A child of God and co-heirs. Heirs with Christ. Let that sink in for a minute. As God's adopted child, you are an heir of God and a co-heir with Christ. Well, what does it mean to be an heir? We know what that means, right? An heir is someone who has the right of inheritance. The right of inheritance of the property of someone else. Most often the heir is a child, right? Children are usually the ones who inherit their parents' property. So let me give you some examples. Under first century Jewish inheritance customs, the oldest son would receive a double portion of his father's property. So I have three children, and my three children are my heirs. If we followed Jewish inheritance customs, Zach wouldn't be very happy, but Jonathan would be thrilled. Jonathan would receive two-thirds of my estate. Zach would receive one-third of my estate. And poor Jessica, as a daughter, would receive nothing. But Roman inheritance customs were different in the first century. Under their customs, all sons received an equal portion of their father's estate. So Zach's a little bit happier. 
Jonathan would receive half, Zach would receive half, and poor Jessica would receive nothing. Well, how about 21st century American inheritance customs? Well, most commonly what happens? Well, all children most commonly receive an equal portion of their parents' estate. Is that good news? That's how our will is set up. Jonathan gets one-third. Zach gets one-third. Jessica gets one-third. But we're thinking about changing it to where James gets one-half and David Wesley gets one-half, but we'll talk about that later. Now let's talk about God's family and about God's heirs. First of all, quick question. This is like Bible Bowl. For want of a better term, how many natural children does God have? You could say it. How many? It's not a trick question. One, right? What does John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Well, let's talk about inheritance in God's family. So under normal inheritance customs, as an only son, Jesus would inherit all of God's estate. But because God so loved the world, he sent his only son, his only heir to the world so that all those who believe in him and all those who have faith in him and all those who in obedience accept him all are formally and legally declared his adopted children with full rights, including inheritance. So in Christ, who are you? Well, you are an adopted child of God with full rights. So under Roman inheritance customs, where does that leave you? Well, Jesus, as the oldest son, he would get one portion, right? And everybody else, all other Christians, would get a single portion of the estate. How about under Jewish customs? Well, Jesus would get a double portion, right? And all the rest of the sons of God would each get a single portion of God's estate, And under both Roman and Jewish customs in the first century, all the daughters would get nothing. But don't panic, ladies. Good news is coming. Good news is coming. Because, see, when your father is the God of the universe, he doesn't follow Roman customs. And he doesn't follow Jewish customs. And when your father is the God of the universe, he does what he does Because he loves all his children. Now, a single portion may not sound all that great, right? A single portion may not sound all that great until you consider who your father is. See, when your father is the God of the universe and everything belongs to him, it changes the math, doesn't it? A single portion of my estate really isn't going to change Zach's life all that much. A single portion of the God of the universe's estate is beyond anything that we can comprehend. A single portion of God's estate sounds pretty good. But God doesn't 
operate according to those Jewish or Roman or even American inheritance customs. No, our Father is much more loving and much more generous than that. So first thing that you need to know is that sons get no special inheritance treatment with our Father, with God. Remember, here in Christ, in God's family, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. So all sons and all daughters are God's heirs. Second thing that you need to know is that there are no shares in God's inheritance. We don't have equal shares with Christ. We don't have unequal shares with Christ. We don't have equal shares with each other or unequal shares with each other. No, instead we are co-heirs with Christ. We are co-heirs. What does that mean? Well, what it means is that as an adopted child of God, you will equally share all things with Christ. And you'll share all things with your brothers and sisters in Christ. There's no division of property. There's no division of an estate. We all share it equally. And when I say all, I mean all. All things. The earth, the world, the kingdom of God, eternal life. We share equally all things in Christ. And that may seem too good to be true. So why is that true? Well, the reason it's true is because you are the adopted child of the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, completely faithful, boundlessly lover, creator and sustainer, God of the universe. And you are a co-heir with Christ. You see, that's who you are. Because that's who your father is is and that's why Paul is able to say this about all of God's adopted children in Ephesians chapter 2 he writes God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For God so loved us that even though we had no natural right to be his children, by grace in Jesus Christ we have been given all of the rights of a son. I want you to embrace the reality this morning that your identity is an act of grace. Your adoption is an act of grace. And your inheritance is a gift of love, a gift of love from your Father, the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, abundantly loving, creator and sustainer, God of the universe. So one final question. What are you going to do with a father that loves you like that? Let's pray.
Father, help us believe that we are who you see us to be, that we are who you have declared us to be. So, Father, we'll be set free to live like the adopted children and co-heirs with Christ that you have made us to be. Father, that's our prayer in Christ. Amen. I'm going to end with identity challenge number three. So what steps are you going to take? What steps are you going to take to better reflect your identity as an adopted child of God? To better reflect your identity as a co-heir with Christ? Are you going to express more gratitude to your father? Are you going to live with more joy? Or maybe you're going to practice more generosity. There's an old joke told about a very wealthy man. He got out of his limo one day, and as he walked by the doorman in his apartment, he gave him a tip. And as he was going by, he heard the doorman say as an aside, his son tips better than he does. And he turned around to the to the man and he said yes my son does tip better than I do because my son has a rich father and I don't have a rich father you have a rich father let's live joyfully let's live generously I challenge you to live like the adopted child of God that he has made you to be let's stand and sing to our father